Well, we live in a world um, where people are often looking for instant happiness, a quick lift, maybe through drink, drugs, entertainment, or um, exciting experiences that will lift our emotions and make us just that little bit happier. But I wonder if this running after short-term instant happiness is not really that good for us in, the long term, in our long-term flourishing. You might think about things like um, Love Island. I don't know if you watch Love Island. I won't embarrass you by asking you to put your hand up about that. I've never seen it myself. But, but I guess people watch it because they, they want to lift, they want a happiness, and, uh, and people go on it, and it's, it's all about the, the moment and being good-looking and everything else. And yet, there's now great sadness around it, isn't there? Because it hasn't led to people flourishing in life. Um, a couple of the contestants have committed suicide, and now um, the presenter committed suicide yesterday. Um, tragedy comes. People are looking for instant happiness. They're not finding long-term, lasting happiness. And just as eating sweets will give you lots of quick hits for happiness, it won't do your health much good in the long run. You'll end up fat and with diabetes, probably. <laughs> what we need is a good diet, isn't it? Your five a day and all that sort of thing. But actually, although people often worry about their physical health, in our society we don't worry enough about our spiritual or emotional health. And yet all the great religions and the great philosophers realize that the real question we need to be asking isn't how do I feel happy now, but how can one experience true and lasting happiness? How can one have a flourishing life? And Jesus, if you like, steps into that field of philosophers. Jesus steps into that field of different religions. Um, and in his first opening um, set of teaching in Matthew's Gospel, he comes and he says, these are the people, this is the way that you'll be blessed. This is the way that you'll find true happiness. This is the way that you'll really flourish in life. And Jesus wants to show us that what he's offering, what he's inviting us into, what the kingdom of heaven is all about, is the way that you will really bring you a flourishing, a lasting, and a wonderful life. And as we come to look at this passage from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, what, a passage that's called the Beatitudes, and that comes from a Latin word which means happy, happy or, or fortunate or flourishing. As we look at these Beatitudes, we'll see that as Jesus comes to them, he brings an awful lot of the wisdom, a lot of the teaching of the Old Testament and the Scriptures. But he brings a new hope and a new perspective to them as well. And so I want to look at the Beatitudes with three headings, um, new law, new wisdom, and new hope. And let's start with the idea of um, new law. Um, so, Moses. You heard of Moses? Yeah, he was um, the guy who brought Israel out of Egypt, and um, he um, spoke the, the laws, the Ten Commandments, to Israel on Mount Sinai. Uh, and at the end of his time, he said this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers, you must listen to him. So, so Israel were looking for a new prophet, the prophet, to come. And Matthew wants to present to us Jesus as that new prophet. Jesus wants, Matthew wants to present to us Jesus as the one who is the new Moses, the one who's fulfilling what Moses came to do, the one that's bringing about the ultimate Moses, if you like. And many of the commentators argue that um, in the first few chapters of Matthew, there's a real exodus pattern to what's going on. Um, it seems to be implied by chapter 2, verse 15. If you've got Matthew open in front of there, you might want to look back, flick back. So there it says, um, 
as it talks about Jesus um, being, being taken as a baby to Egypt and then returning, it says, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. In other words, Matthew's saying, look, you need to be thinking about the Exodus. As you think about what's going on here with Jesus, think about what happened in the book of Exodus. And actually, as you look through the story so far in Matthew, there's lots of um, hints about the story of Moses. So like baby Moses, who was um, rescued from all the other babies of Israel that were being killed by the Egyptians by being thrown into the Nile, Moses was saved, wasn't he? Just as Jesus was saved from all those children in Bethlehem that were killed by the wicked king Herod. And he was rescued because God warned them in a dream to run away. And just as Moses led Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea, so in chapter 3 of Matthew, Jesus comes and he's baptized in the River Jordan. He's gone into the water and out of the water. And what does he do immediately after that? Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted. And what did Israel do after going through the Red Sea? They went into the wilderness. And they were tested because there was no food. <laughs> there was no water and they kept moaning about it. And God kept providing and what happens to Jesus? He's tested. One of the tests is, why don't you turn this stone into bread, Jesus? And yet Jesus passes the test. He says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And then in the story of Exodus, you get to Exodus chapter 18, and um, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, turns up, and, and Jethro's a bit of a management consultant, and he, he sees what's going on, and Moses is working far too hard. He's trying to do everything himself, and he says, what you need to do is appoint people to take on lots of different roles. And so, so Moses appoints um, people to be leaders of thousands, hundreds, and tens, and to make decisions and judgments. And what does, Matthew, what does Jesus do in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 4? After he's been baptized, after he's gone into the wilderness, he comes back, and what does he do? What does he do? He calls people to follow him. He calls disciples, those that will be those to go and do his work and go out. And then in Matthew, in Exodus chapters 19 and 20, what does Moses do? He goes up to Mount Sinai. He meets with God on Mount Sinai. And from Mount Sinai, God gives the law to the people of Israel. And what happens in Matthew chapter 5? Jesus goes up on a mountain. And there he teaches the people. So do you see that Matthew's trying to present Jesus as the new Moses? And just as the Old Testament law was there to help create the new people of God, to form Israel as God's kingdom, as a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, so Jesus sets out his teaching for the newly found people of God, the followers of Jesus, those that will be part of the kingdom of heaven. And again, the whole structure of Matthew underlies this idea of Jesus playing the role of Moses. So, so in the Old Testament, you've got five books of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The five books of Moses, if you like. And in Matthew's Gospel, there's, there's five clear sections. In each one ends with um, the saying, um, when Jesus had finished saying these things. Uh, and these five clear sections five sets of blocks of teaching of Jesus are in Matthew, almost pointing to saying, look, Jesus is the new Moses. Just as you've got the five books of Moses, here you've got the five teachings of Jesus. And um, they'll appear on the screen, just to give you a quick outline of... Um, so chapters 5 to 7 of Matthew is a Sermon on the Mount. That's what we're looking at over the next uh, few months. Um, chapter 10 is when he sends out the 12, and he tells them what, what's going to be involved in mission as they go out and, and teach people and cast out demons and heal. Chapter 13 is those parables of the kingdom, you know, the parable of the sower and, and, and so on. Um, chapter 18 are instructions for the church. And then in chapters 23 to 26 is judgment um, about, and about talk, Jesus talking about the future. Um, so you see that the whole structure of Matthew mirrors this idea of Jesus being the new Moses. And just as um, the books of Moses in, 
in Deuteronomy end with a whole section of blesses, blessings and curse. Curses if you don't follow the law and blessings if you do follow the law. So at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins with blessings. If you become one of my people, if you, if you take on this way of life, if you become part of the kingdom of heaven, these are, this is the blessing you're going to receive. And um, in two ways, there's also curses or woes. So at the end of um, the Sermon on the Mount, there's that warning, isn't there, of um, if you listen to my words but you don't act on them, you'll be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand and when the storm comes, your house will fall flat. Um, so there's a warning at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, but actually also in the last section of teaching, chapter 23, Jesus there is talking to the leaders of Israel. And what does he say to them? Woe to you, because you're like this, and it's going to go badly for you. Woe to you, because you're like this, and it's going to go badly for you. Again and again, he warns them, he warns them. Just like in Deuteronomy, Moses gives the blessings and the curses. So, so as we come to the sermon itself, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, it, it really stresses that what Jesus is about is bringing in a deeper understanding, a fuller understanding of following God's law, um, the law that Moses taught. So you look at chapter 5, verse 17. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is not giving us a new law and saying, you can forget about the old law. He's saying, actually, this is a, it's a fuller understanding of the law. Um, and he says in Matthew 5, 20, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And in the Beatitudes, he talks about, doesn't he, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. This is about people seeking to live God's law, but not just live it in terms of obeying particular rules and ticking them off like, I haven't murdered anyone, I haven't committed adultery, and so on. But actually, in their hearts, pure in hearts, to actually be in tune with the law. And that's what Jesus really talks about in most of Matthew chapter 5. We'll, we'll come on and talk about that a lot more in the coming weeks. Jesus is teaching us that true human flourishing comes through a God-transformed character that is totally aligned with the will of God in our hearts. He's not rejecting the law, but wants a greater alignment with the direction of the law inside us. An attitude, and it's this attitude, he says, will bring true flourishing. Blessed are those who take Moses' law and really live in tune with it. Who really get what the Bible is all really about and talking about. If you want to understand it, Jesus says, come to me, the new Moses. Listen to what I have to say. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Read the rest of Matthew's Gospel. So Jesus brings the new law, the new exodus. But Jesus also brings the new wisdom. Um, in the Old Testament, King Solomon is the famous wise king. Do you know that? Um, he's the one that prayed to God for wisdom and he was renowned for his incredible wisdom. Uh, and the whole book of Proverbs, the whole book of wisdom and wise sayings um, are attributed to Solomon. And Jesus, later in Matthew's Gospel, says this, um, when he's criticizing people that aren't listening to him, he says, look, the Queen of the South, referring to the Queen of Sheba, who came to visit um, Solomon, the Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. 
For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. Do you see what Jesus is claiming? You think Solomon was wise? I'm wiser. <laughs> you think following Solomon's advice would give you a, a happy life, a flourishing life? That's what the Proverbs claim. Then actually, listen to me. I can do so more so. And Matthew, again, wants to point us to Jesus being Solomon, being the new wise king, because um, Jesus is labeled as the son of David. Right, right back in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says, this is a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then in the end of the genealogy, in verse 17, it says, these were the 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Again, it's emphasizing that Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the new son of David, the new Solomon. And Jesus is bringing in a new kingdom. In chapter 4, verse 17, he says, Repent, change your ways, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus is that new king. Jesus is that new wise person. And what does wisdom do? Wisdom answers that question. How can I live a truly happy and flourishing life? And wisdom often answers that question, whether it's the Jewish scriptures or the Greek philosophers, often answer it with little phrases that are like the Beatitudes. Blessed is, or blessed are. And Psalm 1, which we read earlier on together, um, it's a wonderful psalm, isn't it? Um, it's a great start to the whole book of Psalms. And the first couple of verses say this, it'll be on the screen. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on the law he meditates day and night. Do you see that that is a, a beatitude, like the beatitudes in Matthew? This is the kind of person that is happy. This is the kind of person who will flourish in life, it's saying. Um, who will flourish in life? Those who really think about and meditate and, and work on and understand God's law. And there's a wonderful picture in the, in the next verse in the psalm that says this, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Isn't that a picture of flourishing? That's why I've chosen this picture of a, I think it's an orange tree with lots of fruit on it. Lots of green leaves as, as the, the image for this, this series on the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus wants to show us this, this is how you flourish in life. It's when you, when you accept his invitation to become part of his kingdom and live in this way. That's where true flourishing comes from. That's how you can be really happy in life. That's where you have lasting happiness. That's where your leaves are always green. Where you're fruitful in terms of doing good work for people. And the Beatitudes are phrases like this phrase. Now, the word there for blessed is different to the word that um, is often used for, for bless when a priest is blessing the people. So, you know, um, in the priest Aaron would bless the people, and it would be like a prayer that God would do nice things for them. That's a bit of a trite way of saying it, but God would help them to have a good life. And last week, if you are here in the morning, we are looking at the story of Jacob and Jacob wrestling with God. And as he wrestled with God, what was he wrestling for? He wanted a blessing from God. He wanted God to, to do something for him. In his case, it was to make his brother treat him nicely, and he did. Um, but that's not really the sense of these, these wise sayings. 
It's actually a different word in the Hebrew and a different word in the Greek um, to, to the word for bless in the sense of God directly blessing us. It's not saying, do this and God will be nice to you. It's saying, if you live in this way, if you're this sort of person, then you will have a happy and a flourishing life. And so the... And so that's the way the psalm presents it, and that's the way Jesus is presenting it. This is the way to live. This is the way to happiness. This is true wisdom. And just as Psalm 1 presents, um, as it goes on, it presents a choice, doesn't it? It says, those who focus on God's words, they'll flourish. They'll be like this tree flourishing, but, but the wicked, those who despise God's word, what will happen to them? It says they're like chaff. Um, chaff is like the, the bits that no one wants, that just get blown away like the leaves or the plastic bags flying around today. They're rubbish. And they don't last. They've got no root. They don't stay. If you, if you go the other way, if you choose the other roots, then it's disastrous. And how does the Sermon on the Mount end? It ends with, with three images that pick up on this idea of two ways. Jesus talks about the broad way. If you just go the way that everyone else is going without really thinking about it, that's easy, fine, but it leads to destruction. But the narrow way, it may seem hard to follow Jesus, but actually that way leads to life. And, and then the second image in the end of Matthew's Gospel is a bit like the tree image. It's, it says, look, the good tree that bears good fruit, that will flourish, that will last, but, but if you're a bad tree bearing bad fruit, you'll be cut down. And then the final image that we often sing about. The wise man is the one who listens to Jesus and puts his words into practice. It's like a man who builds his house on a rock. It will stick there. When the storms come and the rain rages, and it's not too hard to imagine that at the moment, is it? <laughs> that house will stand firm. But those that listen to Jesus' words and don't really put them into action, those that choose to just sort of forget about them or think, oh, I'll do something about that at some point or I'll, I'll just put it off or I'm uh, not really that interested. Their life might look good for a while, but when the storms come, they'll fall apart. The psalm offers two ways and the, the Sermon on the Mount similarly offers two ways. This is, the way, this is the language of wisdom. This is the language of saying what is the right way. And actually, when you look at the Beatitudes, they pick up on some of the, the psalms, some of the wisdom psalms there are. So, the Beatitudes, I mean, verse 5 says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And Psalm 37, verse 11 says, But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. Very similar, isn't it? Jesus is almost pinching the words from the psalms. And probably that's part of what he's doing here. He's bringing the scripture together. He's sort of giving us a new vision, a new way of scripture. He's fulfilling scripture. Or chapter 5, verse 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Psalm 41, verse 1 says, Blessed is he who has regard for the weak. It's part of what mercy is about, isn't it? It's part of what people are doing when they, they help at the homeless shelter or, or giving out food or going to the food bank we've heard about tonight. The Lord delivers him in times of trouble. He'll be shown mercy. When he's hard up, he'll be helped. Isn't that the same? Again, this wisdom that Jesus is giving here, these Beatitudes aren't just completely out of the air. They're, they're, they're rooted in Scripture. Or Matthew chapter 5, verse 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Uh, and Psalm 24, that psalm is, a, again, a psalm of wisdom about who can come to God. It says, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in God's holy place? He who has clean hands and a 
pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false, he will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Actually, there's an allusion there to that story about Jacob as well, because he said he saw God's face and lived. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be killed children of God. And Psalm 34, verse 14 says, Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. You see that Jesus' teaching is rooted in Scripture. He brings a fuller interpretation. He brings a new slant on it, but, but it's rooted in the Old Testament. It's rooted in the Scripture. He's bringing fulfillment to what is there. So Jesus is a new Moses, bringing a new law and a new wisdom, bringing a, a new way of seeing how we can flourish in life. But Jesus also brings a new hope. He offers a fuller explanation of the law, a deeper wisdom, but he's writing in the context of new hope, of a greater vision of the future of what is to come that picks up from the Old Testament prophets, particularly from the prophet Isaiah. Hold back on that one. Jonah, thank you. <laughs> and again, Matthew is keen to present Jesus as the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophetic hope. Uh, again, in the first few chapters of Matthew, I want to look back, he quote, regularly quotes from Isaiah. So Matthew chapter 3, verse 3, as he talks about John the Baptist, he says, this is he who is spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Or in chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, he again quotes from Isaiah. Um, Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And later on, when John's disciples come to Jesus and say, are you the Messiah or not? Jesus doesn't answer them directly. But he quotes Isaiah. He says, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. These are all phrases from Isaiah. Jesus is saying, I am the one that's fulfilling the hope of Isaiah. I'm the one that's coming and bringing in the kingdom of heaven. Now is the time that Isaiah is being fulfilled. Now people need to stay, pay attention. And it's in the light of this hope being fulfilled in Jesus um, that the fact that the kingdom of heaven is coming here that is crucial to understanding the Beatitudes. And in fact, when you look at the Beatitudes, um, the first one um, says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right at the start, it's saying, look, What's important about what I'm saying here is that you can be part of his kingdom of heaven. You can own it if you like. Uh, and then in verse 10, some people, the eighth beatitude. Some people say it's, there's only eight beatitudes. And the next one is um, not really a beatitude. It's a slight expansion of the eighth one. Um, others say there's nine beatitudes. And some people say there's seven beatitudes. But we won't go into that. <laughs> but on the eighth one, it says, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who are persecuted. Um, we get to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. This is new hope. This is God's coming and acting, God, God changing things around. And this idea of God working, this hope is crucial to be able to make sense of the Beatitudes. Without confidence in God acting, without the reality of the kingdom of heaven breaking in, the Beatitudes are a nonsense. How can those who mourn be comforted unless there is a promise of a better future? 
How will the meek inherit the earth? Unless God is the one acting to bring it about. And how can we rejoice in persecution if a martyr's death is the end of his story, not the start of something better? The Beatitudes require the truth of God's coming kingdom. The Beatitudes require this sense of new hope that Christ is bringing in. And actually, when we look at the life of Christ himself, he is the one who was meek, born in a stable, never having much wealth or power. He is the one who mourned as he looked on Jerusalem and despaired at the fact they'd rejected prophet after prophet after prophet. As he looked at the people he'd preached to who did not seem to be taking up what he'd said. As he looked to those who were meant to be his own people who rejected him. He was the one who was pure in hearts, who showed mercy, who lived a righteous life. And more than anyone, he was the one who was persecuted. As they arrested him, put him on a false trial, and pinned him naked to a cross in public. If Jesus' death on the cross was the end of a story, then all it proved was that power triumphs and corrupt men win out. If the cross was the end of a story, then the Beatitudes are nonsense. The meek won't inherit the earth. That's for the powerful. The pure in heart won't see God. It's the corrupt ones who twisted his words and put him on trial that seemed to win out. But the cross wasn't the end of the story. The cross was followed by the resurrection. And in the resurrection and the following ascension, when God took Jesus and put him at his right hands, and when we look forward to the future, when one day every knee will bow before him, we see that the meek do inherit the earth. We see that the poor in spirit do own the kingdom of heaven. We see that the pure in heart will see God face to face. You see, in a way, these Beatitudes aren't so much about us, but about Christ himself. And that Christ is inviting us to enter into his life, his way, his footsteps. And it shows us that the wisdom Jesus offers isn't a wisdom that's just slightly cleverer or slightly better than the world's. In the world's eyes, it doesn't make sense. Paul in 1 Corinthians says, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The Beatitudes then are founded on this hope that God is acting. As Isaiah looked to the future, as Isaiah looked for God coming to act and turn the world around, the Beatitudes are founded on that promise, founded on that hope that Jesus is preaching about as he preaches about the kingdom of heaven coming. And again, so it's no surprise that the Beatitudes pick up on some of the teaching of Isaiah. So um, this is where Isaiah 61, 1-2 comes in. And Matthew chapter 5, verse 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Isaiah 61 says this, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Do you see how that's rooted in the hope that Isaiah promises? And Jesus is saying that that hope of Isaiah is coming true in me. Of course, we live in a time when we have an element of that truth already. Jesus has risen from the dead. We are forgiven. We are a part of the kingdom already. We are already children of God. And yet we look forward still to the greater hope, to the time when God will really sort the world out, when there will be real peace, where there will be real resurrected life, when we will be really comforted, where God himself will wipe every tear from their eyes. Or Matthew chapter 5, verse 5 says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Isaiah 61, verse 7 says this, Instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance. And so they will inherit a double portion of their land, and everlasting joy will be theirs. Do you see how the Beatitudes pick up on Isaiah again? Or Matthew chapter 5, verse 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And Isaiah 61 verse 11 says, For as a soil makes the young plant come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. The Beatitudes are full of this new hope that Christ brings. And they're there to invite us. They're there for Jesus inviting us to come and really live in tune with God's law as it was meant to be lived, as he fully will show it. They're there to invite us to come and live the wise life that will help us to truly flourish and truly be happy. And they're there to give us hope that in God there is that eternal life, that eternal flourishing that only Christ can bring about. So will you trust Jesus as the answer to that ultimate question, how can I find a truly happy, a lasting happiness, and a flourishing life? Will you take up his invitation to become a part of his kingdom and to take on his ways and follow in his footsteps? Let's pray.